Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Really looking forward to this conversation. You know, I think that one thing that we learned, um, for better or for worse, with regards to uh, COVID was really that there is no, an academic year is actually a full year when we think about the way in which we learn, our kids learn, um, how we need to continue to challenge them, but also meet them where they are and understand their needs um, from a learning perspective. And so I wanted to spend some time with Aaron Dwork, and he is the CEO of the National Summer, Summer Learning Association. Uh, I want to read a little bit about his background, and I'm going to embarrass him like we were at maybe you know Thanksgiving or something with his family. I think it's important to understand where he's coming from, because they're celebrating now, they're on the cusp of their 30th anniversary. They have their National Summer Learning Summit, October 9th through 11th. Um, but Aaron is a national leader in the education in the out of school time, OST and youth development fields. Um, he, at, at NSLA, they work to ensure all young people in America, but especially those of the most vulnerable can access and afford a high quality summer learning experience every year. He oversees NSLA's support to their network of 15,000 program partners and leaders in the areas of program quality partnerships, policy, public awareness, and leadership development. Prior to NSLA, he served as president of the After School All-Stars National Network, a nonprofit organization providing free after-school and summer programs to 90,000 low-income students in more than 450 Title I schools in 20 major cities across the U.S. Previously, he founded and directed Hoops and Leaders, an award-winning grassroots youth mentoring and leadership program for low-income boys in New York City. He's a member of the American Camp Association National Board and a graduate of Tufts University, Harvard's Graduate School of Education, Columbia School of International Public Affairs, and the Carl Fellowship and Leadership Greater in Greater Washington. And he resides in D.C. with his wife and two children. Aaron, it's quite a lot that you've accomplished uh, in a short amount of time. I have more gray hair than you. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it is very clear that you are committed not just to learning, um, but also to paying attention, I would say, and providing focus and opportunity and platform for those that are often marginalized. Uh, before we get into really NSLA and what NSLA does uh, and has done over the last 30 years, let's talk a little bit about your background, um, because if anything sort of screams out of your bio, it's commitment. Um, there, you know, I mean, you are putting yourself really in really that top 1% that said, I want to educate myself at the highest level and sort of keep going, right? This, this notion of lifelong learning. Was this instilled in you as a young person with your family? Tell me where the roots of this come from. Sure. Well, first of all, it's great to be here and thank you for having me and, and on your podcast. Uh, Ron, I look personally, I grew up very fortunate. We didn't always have the most money in the world. Some years were good. Some years were bad. But my family and my parents uh, were very committed to the education of their children and creating and offering opportunities to us, whether it was summer programs, leadership programs, you know, the parks and rec, the library had something. Our parents signed us up and then they uh, and they got us involved. They kept us busy. We learned a lot. I made a lot of great friends. I found a lot of great mentors and I learned a lot of skills, uh, so much so that it became a self-fulfilling prophecy where I was always picked. I was very fortunate as a kid. Maybe I was a little outgoing, gregarious, but I always got picked for these leadership programs. And in those leadership programs, they would teach you how to run a meeting. And then eventually, I was always the guy picked to run the meeting and run the organization. <laughs> I was the only one who was ever trained. And so much so that I looked around, even at a young age, 15, 16, I was like, shouldn't someone else get this chance? Like, why? I'm very fortunate, but there's some other kids have. 
And so then I was hopped around. The other thing that paid a, played a big uh, role for me was uh, for various reasons, between seventh and 10th grade, I was in five different schools in uh, two coasts, private schools, public schools, big schools, small schools, schools where everybody got into fights every day, schools where you know it was safe. And what happened very quickly at a young age is I saw some of the opportunities some kids have and a lot of the opportunities other kids don't. And that was very clear and it was right on display, right in front of my face. And so as I became older and had the chance to pick what I wanna do with my life and my skills and my career path, I just dedicated myself to closing opportunity gaps. And, and that's what I've been doing for almost 25 years. That's an incredible window of time and to have those experiences because it makes you wonder if you didn't, if you hadn't traveled as much, I guess have been moved from school to school, maybe where that would have taken you. Uh, talk a little bit. I, when you have that idea, that notion that, wow, there are differences, right, in this world, and not everybody is, is sort of given maybe or had the opportunity that you had. Talk with me about sort of those initial experiences just from a career and a professional perspective when you're going into environments where maybe you didn't look like the people in the room or you came from a different background where you had to really talk about your own relevance so that you could have a trusting audience to even hear what you had to offer and present and provide. I think that's something that is very tangible for people to learn is how to understand people from different parts of the world, different communities, different cities, different cultures. And that plays a big, big role in our ability to assimilate and, and learn from one another and understand that you've got something to offer maybe that's different than I have. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll just expand a little bit on the on the, the two biggest lessons or skills I got from moving around a lot as a kid. And by the way, I, I live in the D.C. area, so I'm always meeting adults who are the children of military yeah. families. And they had, you know, some they were in many more schools than me. They were a, a different school every year for 11 years, you know, went to three different high schools in four years, things like this. So when so what you take from that is two things to survive. One is you you get really good at making a lot of new friends very quickly. And, and if you want to make new friends, you learn a few other things. One, don't talk so much and listen more and get to know each other. Maybe it helps to be funny and crack a joke. And in my case, playing basketball was a huge life-changing uh, experience for me, not only because I enjoyed basketball, because it allowed me to quickly make friends. And so I got very good in the middle and high school years as to be a point guard basketball player. And if I didn't know anyone, I would show up and I'd play basketball with people who did not look like me, uh, who came from London and I would pass the ball. And if I made sure they scored, they high five me and then I had someone to sit with at lunch. And that, and that was what led me to create my first experience in this career that I've kind of created for myself, which was I made up a whole basketball mentoring program called Hoops and Leaders because I saw that basketball, like a lot of people do this with a lot of other topics and uh, was a way to connect people of different backgrounds. And I had all these friends and every day afternoon, I would be there from five at night till 10 at night, especially in the summer. So the lights went out and I can just tell you story after story. And, and I learned a lot, uh, but mostly I learned how to make friends quickly and get along with people different than me and respect people and, and, and see that everyone has something to contribute. If you don't mind, Rod, can I tell you one quick story? I, real yeah, fast? absolutely. Okay. This is a story I like to tell, but it's it's just so true. And to me, it's very powerful. Uh, when I was in, again, seventh grade, eighth grade, I had a few friends, Jamal, Sahu, Matt. We were little kids. We played basketball every day at our memorial park in our town. And then around five, that was after school. And then like around five, 530, all the big adults would come to play basketball. And they would kick us <laughs> off the court. And then there would be 
and we couldn't get in. And you had to say, I want to play next. And no one wanted to pick these four seventh graders. <laughs> and then this humongous guy shows up. And I say humongous. He was about five foot eight, but he looked like a bodybuilder. His name was Tyrone. And he could dunk. And he had muscles that you wouldn't believe. And maybe he was small and he felt bad for the underdog or whatnot. And he would say, you four guys, you come with me and we will play these adults. And the only way you got to stay on the court is if you won the game. So then we had to do everything. We were trying the hardest. We stayed, we'd win. We, you know, he taught, coached us. He did it. We did it for two years. Every day he would come. They were, I never, I don't even, didn't even know his last name for a long time. So then fast forward, we all get pretty good. We all play varsity basketball in high school and whatnot. <laughs> I graduate college. I decide to go back to, to, I bring a college friend with me back to my hometown. Like, I'm going to show you this basketball court where I used to spend all these days and all these nights. And I'm walking across a baseball field towards the court. And as I'm getting there, I see people are playing. I see these little kids and I see Tyrone is still playing. And he screams to me. I didn't see him in eight years. He goes, Aaron, get over here. I still need, I'm getting too old for this. And it was just like, this was his community service, this guy. He didn't have a master's in education from Harvard. He didn't run a nonprofit. He, this is how he gave back to kids in his community. I'm still telling a story about him 25 years later or more. And just shows you there's lots of ways to give back, to meet kids, give connect with kids and make an impact. And, and I always held on to that. And that experience of relationship building through basketball was what got me started with this whole basketball mentoring program. And then I went from there, but anyway, just thank you for indulging me. Just I, to tell us. No, that to me is the, yeah. that will probably be the most important piece of what just you and I even chat about today. That to me speaks volumes about sort of where we are and the impact we talk about learning as we pivot a little bit to learning and the ability or the opportunity to learn, you know, if we don't have the engagement, you know, some things I think we take for granted, but not every child is, has that sort of experience on a day-to-day -day basis to be able, I mean, just the way in which I know this is a podcast, but if everybody could have seen Aaron just physically, the way he sort of you, your chest opened up your shoulders, you're talking about Tyrone. It was like, you were sort of back on the court. You're smiling now. I mean, that's what connects, not whether you set a, you know, a solid pick for him to get open for a jumper, right? right. <laughs> it's that kind of engagement. It also shows you, Rod, it doesn't take all the money in the world all the time. Good and I have seen, so then, you know, I went, the, the after school all-stars program, the way I moved from New York to LA was started by Arnold Schwarzenegger. And there was a lot of resources available, but one thing that was always very clear was you could have a, a school that had a $250,000 grant to run a STEM maker space. And if you didn't have a, an engaging instructor who could connect with kids, no one came back for day two. And meanwhile, you could have an instructor who didn't have a, you know, a toothpick and a marshmallow and they're trying to build a bridge, you know, with three dollars worth of supplies, but gets along with every kid. Every kid loves them, thinks they're cool. They know their names. They care about them. And they have a line around the building. So this point that you're making about relationships being we always say it's kind of connection before content. You know, this is what yeah. we've got to do. Really, it starts with relationships and then you can teach anything going from there. Let's now dive in a little bit with uh, NSLA. Uh, let's talk about not just sort of the offering, um, but let's talk about sort of where we, do we have pockets of need? Have we seen changes over the, help me understand kind of where we are and what can we glean from it? Because I think what's good, bad, or indifferent when we've thought historically about summertime is it's like, you know, it's this window, it's a snapshot in time and you kind of hope your kid doesn't lose what they learned and you just, 
hear no evil, see no evil. <laughs> right? Um, but that's not exactly the case. And school now does not go from eight to three and only from, let's say, Labor Day to Memorial Day. Like this is just not the way that it works in a global economy and in a world that's moving so fast that people are having to have multiple jobs just to sort of keep things on the tracks. Um, how, how do we understand sort of the offering of NSLA now in 2023 and what does it say about kind of where we are and the gaps that we're trying to fill based on the offerings and the changes that you guys have seen? Sure. So let me, like, let's give you a little quick context. So, so NSLA, I didn't start it. I've been here for four years, right? Or basically right before COVID. Uh, but it's been around for 30 years and it was started at Johns Hopkins University by a student named Matthew Boulay, uh, who was a student of a professor named Carl Alexander, who did kind of original seminal research on what they call the summer learning loss and summer slide, where he tracked thousands of students in Baltimore and said, higher income students get to do all these great things in the summer and they get, they have fun, they're passionate, they learn new things and they're ready for school in September. And then a lot of low income kids don't have those opportunities and they fall behind. And so from that, Matthew helped start this organization to put a spotlight on this issue. What COVID did, flash forward, so we moved from a niche issue in education, which some people cared about, mostly if you were the person in charge of summer school at a school district, you, you called NSLA and you got help from us and resources from us. But COVID, once it shut down schools, then all these walls and lines between the school day and the after school and the school year and the summertime, they all just went away. And everybody was trying to help kids had to figure out how to work together. And, and so what we always say was there was almost like an empathetic aha moment, because if you think about it, even higher income students, if you're it's not students, parents, if you had your job and you were working remotely, but now you had your two kids coming in and out and trying to do your job. And that's hard. That was even hard for parents who had money and could afford help. And so there was this empathetic aha moment, like, is this what low-income families might have to do, deal with on the summer months? when they're trying to keep a job, but their kids can't afford to be in a program and they're home, they're trying to get up to work and get back and rate. And everyone just kind of understood like, wow, this is hard for everyone. It's harder for others who have less uh, resources available. So, so you take that. The other thing about summer that's so interesting, which is uh, we think it's one of the most high need, but also one of the most entrepreneurial times in education. Everybody, you know, it, yes, is there more need, but you could do more in this so there's a little more flexibility to kind of create new programs. We sometimes call it the R&D time, the research and development time in education. I you like that. wanted to teach a podcasting, you know, uh, course <laughs> to students, you know, you couldn't unfortunately get it to fit in during the curriculum. There's so much to cover. But in the summer, you could create that and teach kids how to interview and how to use the equipment and market themselves and do all these things that, you know, is it, is it reading? Is it writing? Is it interpersonal? It's, it's everything. But you get to do that in the summer. And if it goes well, it can carry into the school year. So it's this high ROI time, you know, and, and I can give you example after example. So that's why I'm drawn to it. I think that's why a lot of people are drawn to it. I, sometimes people say to me, oh, you're the guy who cares about summer. Yes, of course, I care about summer. But mostly I care about kids. If kids in America were out of school between January and March, I'd be focused on that time. <laughs> it just turns out that we have almost 29 million kids in America who are on the free and reduced lunch program who don't have what to do uh, in the summer months. I mean, more do now, but so that's that's where I'm focused. And it's a, both a high need and a high impact time. So it, it seems worth it. Uh, help me understand the, uh, maybe it's not the right word, but I'll use it, but the sort of the competitor landscape 
around summer. How has it changed? I know uh, loosely I had interviewed some folks over the last decade that had provided some services in the summer, and there were just a lot of what they would maybe deem, you know, hurdles uh, and red tape when it came to working with kids in summertime that made it, you know, pretty challenging for them to run their operations. Uh, what are we looking at when it comes to offering? If I'm just a typical parent who is trying to understand, or I'm an educator at a public school, what what do I? what's the landscape look like? Well, it's really broad and diverse, which is why at our conference coming up in a few weeks, we're going to have one of the most kind of broad array of education and civic leader gatherings you can imagine. Because so who works in the summer? You have a lot of unlikely allies in the summer in terms of education people. People who don't work with kids at all during the school year are working in the summer months with young people. What, do, what does that mean? So we have, uh, like you might imagine, hundreds of school districts, thousands of school districts we work with and support and state education agencies, you know, in charge of what's traditional summer school, and we're trying to make it a little more engaging and, and, and make it summer learning. And just, just quickly, one way we define summer learning is we say, if you take the academic goals of summer school, math, reading, STEM, and you had, combine them with the uh, community and leadership and individual uh, growth goals of summer camp, and you had a baby between summer camp and summer school, you ended up with summer learning. It, just, it can't be all one or the other. It can't be only some kids get to go have s'mores and play kickball and learn to water ski, but they don't have to practice math and reading. And then low-income kids only have to do math and reading. They don't get to have fun and do plays and music and arts. Work. So we need people to have both. Um, but with that said, so we have school districts, partners. We have all, a huge array, thousands upon thousands of nonprofit organizations, your YMCA, Boys and Girls Clubs, you know, uh, you can name it, 4-H, who are running programs, Outward Bound. And then and it keeps going, local programs. And then we have the third group of people who serve kids in the summer, which don't always get as much attention as they deserve, which we refer to as youth serving government agencies. These are your libraries, your parks and rec centers, your public housing authorities have staff running programs. And then as kids become older and teens, uh, it becomes summer jobs and summer internships. So you have all these people all trying to work with the same families, same kids, same communities, same neighborhoods. They don't often connect and collaborate and coordinate as much as they should and stretch their money. And they have different strengths and skills that they could be complementary if they would work more together. Uh, so this and then surrounding all these groups is corporations, foundations, you know, government. And um, so it's really kind of a fun job to have to bring all these different stakeholders together. And if you're trying to reach all the kids, as we've been challenged to do by the Secretary of Education through his Engage Every Student initiative, well, if that if that's not just a phrase and you're really trying to reach, you actually need all these people to work together. So it's a broad uh, landscape, competitive landscape. The thing that's good about it is there's enough kids to go around. Uh, normally, we don't have enough money. There seems to be a good amount of money right now if we're efficient and, and move quick. And and then there's a not you know a humbling recognition on a lot of people's part, which is that kids have a lot of variety of interests. This is why we don't have just a one monolithic program that everyone in America has to go to. Some kids are interested in this and some in that. So you need lots of variety of programs, and not everyone is great at everything. So if you're a good math program, that's great. Keep providing math. Don't don't do arts, or you know, or team up with someone who does arts. And if you're good at arts, you don't need to try and come up with reinvent the wheel, do math. Find the math program and do something. So there's a lot of, we talk about doers and we need gluers. And at this moment, we need more people connecting dots, especially at the local level. 
How do we uh, attack the stigma of summer learning? And I don't know if this goes back to like Molly Ringwald and the Breakfast Club, but I think that a, a large swath of people, at least in this country, see or think of summer learning as something that is to fix something or a gap. Um, and I'm not... I'm I'm hearing from what you're providing so much context and it's such a rich conversation and an understanding the impact of summer learning and the providers right from these different arenas and platforms that are at, you know, um, within the communities. I mean, they're, they're at, you know, parks and rec and library. Like, I don't know if people have a, a firm grasp of that. Um, so it's not in essence, just what we thought it was. It's not sort of your parents' summer learning. And I, do you think that that plays a role in getting people to the table? I mean, I don't want to. Absolutely. No, no. I look, I think if I said, Hey, I want you to go to summer school or even work in summer. What am I doing wrong, Aaron? What right, I... right, right. It was punitive. You're not wrong to yeah. think that is the reputation. That's why we actually call it summer learning. Summer school historically has been a punishment. It's been remedial. It's been mandatory. You know, it's only for kids who struggle and make you take the next that you failed. You had to go. What and, and kids had no say in what was going on. And it only took place in the school building. We like to think of position in summer learning as a complete opposite. Yeah, you know, it's not just, yeah, if you may, you need to catch up, sure. But you could also learn new things that you don't get to do. Take your podcast. You know that the New York Times runs a summer program called the School of the New York Times, where families are paying thousands of dollars for their middle schooler to go live in the NYU dorms and shadow a reporter, a sports reporter, a food critic, a fashion writer. All right. They're learning. They're right. They're doing journalism. <laughs> I love the New York Times, but I, I make fun of them because I say, you know, they sometimes struggle to get anyone to buy a newspaper for three dollars, but they have lots of people willing to pay thousands <laughs> of dollars to see how to create a newspaper. Now, that's summer learning. Now, so one of the distinctions to make is uh, being school aligned which we talk about, it's very important that all these programs, you know, what does the school need, what do the students want, what, you know, academically, but it doesn't have to be school building based. And that is how you take advantage of the summer and you get to get kids out in your parks and you get it. There's a program called Teachers in the Parks in Reading, Pennsylvania, where teachers sit on blankets with whiteboards and six students and they have a box of books under a tree from 9 a.m. to 12 noon every day for six weeks. And the kids love it. The parents love it. The teachers love it. I go visit. The teachers are crying. They're like, this is why I got into education to begin with. And then at lunchtime, the parks and rec people come with lunch, and then they do sports, and they go swimming, and that's it. And their only, uh, you know, obstacle is rain. And and they have data, and they work on the books that the kids had to read in the last spring quarter, and then they're ready for the fall. And and I'm just saying, and, and the teacher and principal now, Matthew Hathaway, runs it. He's like, all these teachers tell me they're, they're happy to work in the program. They just don't want to be in their classroom. They don't want to be in Zoom and they don't want to work a whole day. And as long as you kind of be responsive to what people ask, yeah. everyone's happy to do it. And they have a waiting list of teachers, which people can't find in some programs. And he's got a waiting list of kids. And I'm just saying, and I can give you an example, an example. So it's just there's a creativity and responsiveness that people need. And I just tell you one last favorite group here. There's a lot of great groups that we give out national awards. So I get to visit all these programs and learn about them. Uh, two that I saw this year. One is called Math Corps. This is a program at Wayne State University in downtown Detroit. Free program for weeks. My hometown. What? You're from Detroit? My, I'm from Detroit, yes, sir. Oh, okay. So the professor in the math department and his colleague, you know, Steve Kahn, starts this program where basically the model is math major college students get paid to teach and train high school students. They teach them math and teach them how to teach math 
for free to middle school students who get to come for free. And they have hundreds of kids. They have a huge waiting list. Every middle school kid wants to move up to the high school. Every high school kid wants to move up to the college. They don't have a pool. They don't have a field. <laughs> they have a DJ. They have a minister of humor. They're doing chants about uh, fractions. <laughs> I mean, it is unbelievable. And it just shows you, you know, everything is about, you know, creating equity and opportunity. But ultimately, the special sauce of all the programs that I'm telling you about is that they build a, a sense of caring community. And yeah. everyone cares about each other. Everyone knows each other's name and everybody's looking out for each other. And people, the, the kids in, each, in this program in New Jersey were crying. They're like, this is the safest place I could ever be. Everyone makes fun of me for coming. I love it. I can't wait to come back every year. They got all these traditions and they're sending kids off to college and they get up to such a high level. There was an intern I had named Zion. He ended up going to Dartmouth. He was so high up in math that he got sick of math and became a physics major. And... <laughs> comes out of this program, the summer program every year for years. And this is how it changes people's lives. And part of the, part of the challenge or the opportunity is to also bring in, you know, have these public private partnerships. And it looks like you guys have done a really nice job of integrating in uh, corporate America at sort of all different levels to provide support resources. I'm sure there are obviously different ways that people engage, even collaborating with Netflix. Talk a little bit about how you have approached that and the response that you get when you walk into meetings to talk, not maybe, you know, uh, like balance sheets, but you're there to talk about kids. I bet it's a, a nice reprieve for many of them. Oh, that, I think that's interesting. Uh, yes. Listen, I take a multi-sector approach to all challenges in our society. I don't think the, the challenges we have in education being one are so great that no one sector by itself can solve it. So if we want to improve education, it's not going to just be schools by themselves or nonprofits and business. You know, it takes all, all three. And people need to have a multi-sector mindset. So when you deal with corporations, I would say one thing. They, they care about kids. These are their future workforce. These are the children of their employees, their own children. So they get why it matters to invest in, in, in students and, and kind of skill building. But also, um, you know, they want to be good corporate citizens and community citizens. And they, they, they live there, too. And they pay taxes and they, they care. They're driving by these kids. And they, they you know, and they have strengths and, and assets to, to leverage. A lot of times, nonprofits, groups, I would argue, actually ask these corporate partners for, like, the wrong kinds of help. You know, I have an example. Uh, I once worked with a very high up real estate guy in New York and, you know, he did not want to tutor kids in math. That was they kept asking him to volunteer and volunteer. he's like, I don't want to do that. But then one day they needed to do a fundraiser where they walked up the steps of the new Walt, uh, World Trade Center building. And he's like that. I could get you the building if you would have just asked me. He's, he's like, I've been on the board for 20 years like that. I could help you do. And And so people don't always ask one, the corporations what they need and two. They don't always ask the important question is, what can we do for you, too? And, and it's not just about asking to, for help for us and for kids. Yes, that's important. But, like, how can we be, you know, do you want your employees to get volunteer? Do you need, do you, you know, what's in it for you? And make it win-win. So with that said, we work with a lot of corporations. New York Life Insurance Foundation has made out-of-school time, high school readiness and uh, bereavement some of their top priorities. And they see summer programs as a way to help kids. There's a lot of camp. Uh, just, if you lose a parent. There's a lot of camps out there in the summer to help you deal with that loss. And that's really interesting to New York Life. They also, um, you know, clear channel billboards. They have billboards. They, you want to get a message out. You want to remind parents to sign your kids up for a summer program? Well, 
there they have some billboards and not sometimes they're usually in use but sometimes they do these pro bono ad campaigns and they picked my group summer learning association to do something called discover summer where we had a website with 60,000 programs listed you type in your zip code and any wow. parent can find programs near them and we got the word out thanks to clear channel billboards and iHeartRadio radio ads um we have lots of you know um northwestern medical school uh runs a summer program for minority high school students in chicago that teach them how to be doctors and it's an amazing program of uh, the white coat project it turns out almost every medical school at hospital or they almost a lot dozens are running summer programs for low-income high school kids to teach to learn how to be doctors i didn't know this until i got this job um i now have 30 of these groups meeting at my conference they're all wow. reinventing the wheel they don't talk to each other about it it's always starts the same way uh, a doctor of color looks around and says, there's not enough people who look like me here and I need more people to, you know, learn about this profession. And he starts grabbing high school kids <laughs> from down the street and maybe they know how to be a doctor, but they don't know how to like structure a program and talk to a school doctor. So you just have all these partners who want to help out. And again, that's an example. Of, those are folks, they don't have time necessarily to run programs for kids during the school year, but NIH and the FDA have programs for high school kids. It's just, there's so many people doing different things. And so we want to help everybody. Uh, so we're working at every level from the federal to the state to the local level. And, and we're trying to lift up best practices and model programs so people, uh, we, we do trainings, we try and help people uh, not reinvent the wheel. And, you know, and if we don't know the answer, we can connect people to, to those who have. Aaron, let's let's close with this. Um, I can't help but just think, you know, you shared that story, which I think was wonderful um, about Tyrone. Right. And I'll, I'll say it. You don't have to say it, but it's like it's a little bit like you are your own version of a Tyrone in the space that that you occupy. Um, talk a little bit about the sense of responsibility that you feel. If, I, I get the sense, you know, I'm lucky to interview and spend time with people that have done some amazing things. And I love when I see it that they it's almost like they've reached their their happy place professionally. You know, it combines sort of all the different elements of what they bring to the table, their story, in a way with they then have a platform to make a difference in the things that really matter to them. And you may not be on the basketball court, but what you're doing and what your organization is doing is really, it sounds like, translating a very confusing marketplace so that others can benefit from opportunity so that they can realize what it's like for them in a world where they do see opportunity as opposed to opposition to learning and to opportunity that they may or may not otherwise have been able to experience. What's the sense of responsibility you feel like when you uh, sort of close down at night? Um, it's so funny. Whenever we run a few leadership programs, not, that's not our main thing, but we run uh, uh, all expense paid summer internship program on Capitol Hill for alumni, college, low-income college students who graduated from some of our award-winning programs as teenagers, now they're in college. Now we get them internships with their U.S. senator, but even if they get that internship, they can't afford to move to D.C. So we cover all their expenses. And that's like, and if it works well for 10 weeks, then they get a full-time job offer to, to, you know, that is a high ROI time. So when I, when I think about like what matters is like creating these opportunities that could lead to real next steps and options. Uh, for kids. And I think that's what I like to think about. And what I think my whole team, you know, it, it's an amazing gift to get paid to, you know, in your life to do, like you say, to do what you love, to do what you're passionate about, but also um, to give not just, you know, opportunities, but options. 
to kids. Not like not just to give kids a chance, as sometimes people say, but to give them a choice. Do I want to work for that center? Maybe I don't want to be in government. Maybe I want to work in business. You know, and that's what you want all kids to have. And the summer is a great time to give kids exposure. So then they really have those opportunities, but they have not they have choice and they have options. And then they get to decide, all right, what do I want to do? And that was something I was fortunate to get as a kid. That's what my parents put me in position to have. And so I just want to put others in position to have that for themselves too. Well, I, I find you to be a terribly likable guy that definitely brings a childlike approach and wonderment to things, uh, which we need, we sorely need. Um, it speaks to National Summer Learning Association. And I know you haven't been there for 30 years, but it sounds like you're going to be there for quite some time and that everyone's going to be benefiting from that. I want to make sure people can learn more about NSLA. You can go to summerlearning.org. That's summerlearning.org. They've got their National Summer Learning Summit on October 9th through the 11th. Uh, Aaron, what a great pleasure uh, to spend some time with you. I'll be thinking about the Tyrone story. Uh, throughout my day uh, and week and keep up the keep up the great work. Have a wonderful summit. And I look forward to connecting with you in the future. Thank you again, Rod. Thank you to your audience. Appreciate your time and help. Thank you. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.